Hello and welcome to the S Podcasts. This evening, depending upon where you are in the world, I suppose, um, I have Richard Watts, who is a lifelong Evertonian. Uh, we're going to talk about Everton, we're going to talk about governance, we're going to talk about many of the issues that one suspects the uh, the review that is currently happening at Everton uh, will cover. Richard, hello, how are you? I'm very good, Paul, how are you? Yeah, very good, thank you. Well, I think two Evertonians speaking together at this time of the season, we're probably as good as we can be if we yes, ignore... It, it, it's all relative at the moment, isn't it? As, as I speak to you, on 5.38, Everton have a 53% chance of being relegated, which is uh, uh, horrific. <laughs> Um, shouldn't really laugh because it is horrific and it is, I suppose, a culmination of all of the events that we're going to talk about. It's difficult where to start, isn't it? Where the um, demise or potentially the, or rather the potential demise of Everton starts. Um, perhaps, Richard, if you want to talk about yourself a little bit first, then we can get into the you know what it is that we're, we're, where we are and, and and why we're we are where we are what we sorry very bad English why we are where we are at. certainly so I, I've been uh, an Everton member so Everton supporter since well the age of eight and you can tell from my accent I'm not I'm not from the city but yep. uh, <clears> the <throat> 1984 cup final was the first match I watched on TV and uh, I've been hooked Ever since, my first match at Goodison was in the 87-88 season, a nil-nil draw at home to Spurs with Trevor Stephen missing a penalty. Uh, and I, I just loved it. And I've been you know, hooked on Everton ever since. And despite now, for all of my adult life, living in London, when we live not very far away from the Arsenal ground, both of my sons, I have committed to a life of misery by getting them to be proper blues, blues as well. And they're the only ones at their school, so they're not having great, a great time of it as well uh i've spent most of my career working in and around politics i was a leader of a council in london for for a while and i now work kind of delivering public services citywide and you know that's given me a pretty good insight into how complicated decisions are made about how you deal with uh you know big strategic questions multi-hundred million pound uh financing and uh, construction projects and so you know i've looked at what's gone on uh, Everton really since Farhad Mashiri took over with a sense of growing unease about the governance of the club and the decision making around the club not meeting any of the criteria that I would like to think went into good sound long-term strategic decision making and I think you're absolutely right to say that what's happening now is the culmination of you know six years since Farhad Mashiri took over of, of bad decision making uh there's really interesting article in in the athletic if i'm allowed to mention them that that i read today that actually ties this back to the failure to grasp the commercial opportunities of the the premier league when it when it first started and the everton that i i supported as a kid you know one one of if not the best team in the country uh and we've never we've you know never got that back because of the disaster of the of the 1990s and and we have to remember all of those awful years when it felt like we were seven or eight years in a row with like the odd exception of the cup winning season and uh, things when we were felt like we were fighting relegation right up to the last weeks of the season almost every year and 
understand now what we need to do to even if we against the odds survive this season to not be in this position ever again yeah <clears throat> to- totally agree i mean it, it, sort of just just to add to what you you've said i'm a lifelong evertonian um i'm a fourth generation evertonian my kids are fifth generation although they lived they've lived in london most most of their lives and i i i recognize completely um I've seen my son play football on, on, on a pitch where, or rather on a field where like there may be like 300 other kids, probably around the age of 10 or 11. And of those 300 kids, and probably 250 got Chelsea shirts on, uh, 49 have got Arsenal shirts on. And then there's my son with um, Everton's away kit with like Tim Cahill, 17 on the back of it. Um, so I, 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 I get totally what, what, what you're saying. It, it is remarkable that uh, Everton Football Club find themselves in the position that they are in, in terms of both on the pitch, but also in terms of off the pitch. And I think the two are very, very much um, related. And I think what we're going to talk about in the next 45 minutes is probably in terms of there's currently apparently a strategic review going on within the club now, whether that relates just to football or whether it relates to how actually we've ended up in the position that we're in. Um, no, Nobody's that clear. But I think both you and I, Richard, we want to talk about what our views would be of a strategic review. So if the club asked us, asked you, um, I think many people have heard what I've had to say about it in the past, uh, what would this? What what would this? Uh, <coughs> excuse me. What would this strategic review look at, um, and what would your response be to that? I think the strategic review, and it, you're absolutely right. Before I start to bang on, that it is immensely frustrating that we haven't heard anything about on the club, what its terms of reference are, what it's covering, uh, who it who it impacts. We've seen a director of football uh, appointed who has given, I think, a very good account of himself in, in interviews and seems to have made some early decisions, which I think feel the right ones to me about sorting out some of the youth structure and the, and the development squads. But it, all of that's in the context of us not understanding anything about how the club is making its decisions. And it, in truth, for me, this the core problem at the club is it is as a, as a business, as a footballing entity, we make, we make terrible decisions. And we make that's not by accident. We make terrible decisions because the you know the, our decision making processes as a, as a club seem completely flawed, and we don't seem to have the levels of expertise or the you know kind of critical thinking or the levels of kind of critical challenge internally that would allow us to improve the way we make decisions. And I, I completely agree with you, Paul, that the what we're now seeing on the pitch is a direct result of what we've seen off the pitch over the last you know five or six years but frankly arguably over the last 25 or or 30 mm. so for I, 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 sorry can I just cut across you i suspect you and i both know and have both experienced uh both in the private and the public sector people that have responsibility for huge sums of money um but use that money relatively effectively 
and use it to advance whatever their cause is. You know, and obviously both public and private are, are very different in terms of what their causes might be. Everton obviously is, is, is a private cause, although it has a huge, um, I think it has a huge public connection, which we might want to explore a little bit later in, in, in the podcast. Why is it that a club that has been so well resourced in the last six years and had an owner that's so willing to uh, put funds into the club? It's a difficult question, I know, but why is it we're in the position that we're in? I have no. I should make clear. I have no inside insight on 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 the club. I don't have. No, but you, but you have a view as to how, uh, but in your case, public bodies yeah. um, work and how they use the resources that they're given. I think the basic truth is, money has been wasted primarily on buying footballers <clears throat> who aren't very good, yep. or are played in the wrong position, or were played in the right position by a manager who was then fired in short order and wasn't fancied by his his successor and I paid enormous sums of money uh, I think we've been unlucky with some injuries uh, as well and I think there's a I, d- I don't know but there's a real question about whether this nature of the injuries we've got is because of the churn of, of managers coaches fitness setups uh, and that kind of and that kind of stuff and because we haven't been able to up our commercial income or or the other uh kind of commercial elements of the club effectively to offset the fact we're now playing enormous sums in wages to players who you know, often simply aren't, aren't delivering the goods on the pitch. And you know, the, the sums we paid out just to sacked managers on the basis of sacking managers is, have been enormous, uh, eye-watering almost. But Frankly, what that's left is a whole range of managers who've been empowered to sign players who their successors don't fancy in the utter mess we currently have of a of a squad where we have some not very good players. We have some players who can play a particular way, but that's not the way the current manager wants to play. And we have some pretty you know, we have some, you know some good players, you know, two in Richarlison and Calvert Lewin, I think grade A talent talents who I don't know how long we're going to be able to keep. And all of this, the, the utter confusion around the way in which the club has made decisions has just led the club, I think, you know, going from one extreme to the other in terms of the style of play, from Sam Allardyce to Marco Silva to, you know, pro, to a, a pragmatist in Carlo Ancelotti to uh, Rafa Benitez, the catastrophe of Benitez, to now Frank Lampard, who I think is a very... You know, potentially good coach, but who let's not forget when we appointed him had only two and a half years experience as a as a coach, and he's clearly learn, learning very quickly on the job. And while I think Lampard may grow into a very good manager down the line, appointing someone who has to learn on the job if, after two and a half years doing the job, you know, really small amount of time doing the job, was a, I, I think a a gamble too far when the club is already heading right, right into a relegation battle. Um, I, th- I think I think I'd agree with you there. I, I suppose the counter argument is that um, Lampard came in, but when he came in, he clearly wanted to bring, and I think one, one of the reasons why ultimately it took so long to get Lampard in was that I, I suspect he recognises um 
you know, the lack of experience that he has as a manager. Obviously, great experience of football as a player, but as a manager. And that's why we've ended up bringing in people like Paul Clement, um, Joe Edwards and, and Ashley Cole, for example. I, I think I think it's a really, really interesting point going forward. I'm not sure how it works out if we get relegated, but if, assuming we don't get relegated for a second, the fact that um, Lampard has brought in a, you know, a team of highly qualified people, people who could get roles in clubs in a better position than Everton are currently. Um, so obviously somebody has either created or sold a story to these people alongside Frank Lampard, it could be Frank Lampard himself, that says, um, assuming we get through this season, there are better times ahead. I, I think I, I think that's clear. And look, look, Frank Lampard is himself a person with you know, a significant of cachet in the game. So he was yep. a, a genuinely world-class footballer. And I think Everton are still a club with a lot of a lot of cachet as well, even despite the mess we now find ourselves in. And I suspect it wasn't that big a sell to people, you know, to some of the people he has to he, he wanted to bring with him. And also some really really positive things around Lampard having had a good think about what went wrong as Chelsea dropping Jody Morris, who's his old assistant manager, and taking Paul Clement instead. He's clearly, you know, knows more about has forgotten more about football today than I will ever know. So the you know, so a lot of that was positive, but I, I was still st- stood there at Spurs watching us play a high line against the best counter-attacking team in, in the country at the moment and conceding five five as a result, which just felt to me like a, a tactical setup that, that you know, I wouldn't play on Football Manager, let alone uh, us as a, as a Premier League manager. And, and it does feel like he's learning the players. You know, he's learned, I think, that Alan is... A, a number eight, not a number six, instinctively, and therefore has brought Delph in and actually, and this is suppose what I mean by the, the mess of the squad and the unbalancedness of the squad. Yep. The act of bringing Delph in, who's a player who's been incredibly unlucky with injuries, but has cost us an awful lot of money in wages over the last last three years, has allowed, I think, Alan and Iwobi to play in the positions that most naturally suit them, having, you know, and they've been, funnily enough, a lot better as a result. You know, we've we've been labouring under the impression that Alex Iwobi is a winger for a number of years, who I think is an immensely talented, but clearly, uh, yeah, is a, an immensely talented footballer, but one who, you know, we've just played in the wrong position and completely used the wrong way. He was bought to do a job for a manager who was yet again sacked six months later. And it's, it's in, you know, the way in which, people like Iwobi have been wasted by being played out of position or because managers have never really understood their full position and, the, and is indicative of the way in which we've burnt, you know, we've burnt through money uh, and failed to get the best out of our, our playing squad. And coming back to the, the strategic review, the core reason for that is because we've chopped and changed managers, we've chopped and changed styles, we've chopped and changed directors of football, we, we've had no consistency in our approach to the game. We've had no strategic view about how we get to where we want to be as a, a, you know, one of the best teams in the country, challenging for European places, you know, potentially even you know, with luck, effort and investment, challenging for a Champions League spot. And it's the complete inconsistency and lack of decision-making that's meant that, that, that money has just been burned. And now, 
you know, we're up against, because of the way in which money has just been burned through, we're now up against the limits of the uh, uh, finance and sustainability rules in the Premier League, mm. which means actually it's, it's going to be quite hard to spend. And we, we, we are losing money hand over fist as a club, which means the threat of relegation, particularly if we don't bounce straight back up, is Im- you know, immensely serious. And you, you know more about this than I do, Paul, but you, you know, you, you've spoken about this at length, about the enormous possibly ex- existential risk to this football club of us getting stuck in the championship or, or, or then even worse. Absolutely. <laughs> so much to unpack from what you just said. Um, in, in your experience, in, in your you know, um, professional life, have you ever come across a situation where the people who actually are responsible for what's happened are the people who then go forward and and, and make a review of what's happened? No, I, 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 I've never seen a situation where a mess, the corporate mess in the scale of Everton Football Club is sorted out without significant changes of personnel at the top. And by that, I don't mean Frank Lampard and Kevin Thelwell. Uh, I mean, the people, I mean, the board and the people above them, people who actually make the long-term decisions over the future of the football club. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, I've got 40 years corporate corporate experience and I've I've never seen a situation where a shareholder... um, puts more money in than he he or she probably ever thought they would have to do so. Um, and why did they put that money in? Well, they put that money in in order to cover the, the mistakes that have been made over the previous you know, period, in evidence case, six years, but then have never made the changes at the sort of board and executive level um, that in any other set of circumstances would be absolutely the right response as virtue of the fact that they are responsible for um, the fact that he has to put more money in than he thought he would do so. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about Farhad Mashiri's other, you know, businesses. Yeah. But I cannot imagine he runs his businesses in the way he runs Everton Football Club. It would be uh, unthinkable. Or if he chooses still to make kind of capricious, ill-thought-through decisions, and that's what he's been doing at Everton, there are then governance structures around that that let's stop it. And I think that's one of the things that we lack at Everton is that is, you know, if if one of Mashiri's weaknesses is, you know, he will kind of swan in and out and you know come in at times of crisis and make a make an ill-considered, you know, short-termist decision, often motivated by what feels like some sometimes the wrong, wrong motivation, then there aren't the governance structures around that can control that. And I think, and I, th- I think, yeah, I'm, I'm sounding very critical of Fahad Mashiri. Uh, you know, Fahad Mashiri has put hundreds of millions of pounds of his own money into Everton, and I don't doubt genuinely, actually, he wants the best for the club. My my, my appeal to him in the unlikely event he ever listens to this is do think you know in doing things differently actually he's going to get what he wants which is stop stopping the current you know the way in which the club does its business yeah i, I, I totally agree so in, in in order to uh differentiate what we're what we're talking about which i think you know a number of people are now talking about the situation everything find themselves in um 
it's obviously very easy to look back and to be critical of what's happened. But actually, what, what is it that we need to do going forwards? That, and obviously, the two um, directly opposing situations of being either in the Premier League or being in the Championship. Um, what is it that we need to do going forwards that changes what, we're, what we've done in the past and what we're currently doing? So in terms of how we run, run the club, I... Let, let's learn from the best, shall we? I, if you look at the way Man, Man City are run as a as as a club, clearly they have owners who have enormous money and have been mm-hmm. you know, uh, absolutely ploughed money into the club. I mean, one, one can't get a, one can't get away from that, that the fact that that's that's the starting point. But then put in place structures around the club that shows that money is used well. Because Man United show that spending very similar amounts of money badly gets you a club that's going to finish sixth or seventh this season. Yet Man United, you know, Man City are going to finish probably one one hopes uh, for their fourth league title in five five years and uh, maybe the Champions League as well. And that's because what they've done is put in place a way of making decisions. That means the, the enormous amounts of money they've got are used are used well. If you look up, I googled their board of directors, who are people of you know the highest level kind of corporate and commercial experience. These are people used to making big, serious decisions. There's you know people you know kind of people with a expertise around running running the entity there's people close to the chairman and the owners which is which is understandable but there's a kind of solidity but there's a level of experience and resilience about that setup uh, which means that they've then got a football setup from uh, which has got a very long-term view around how they want the club to develop they've got you know world-leading facilities that they've been able to invest in but they've got development squads running all the way through that are teaching people to play football the, the kind of the, the Pep Guardiola Man, Man City way and if you look at the kind of the calibre some of the 17 year olds and 18 year olds they have on their bench at the moment it's pretty you know all, all of whom are many of them you know, are English and kind of some, quite a lot of them are local lads to the club that feels pretty pretty scary about how they're going and so, you know, yeah, they've got money, but Everton have spent money, Man United have spent money. It's led us to very different places than where Man- Manchester City have got as well. And talk about the club across the park who uh, have deeply annoying and frustratingly bought exceptionally well by deploying, you know, outstanding, you know, cutting edge people on data and analytics. But again, having a really clear view about how they want to play football and signing players to to meet that to to uh, fulfil that vision, which means they tend tend not to make bad bad signings, and saying so that Man City tend not to make bad signings either, and that's that's not an accident. That's because they've got outstanding people analysing the players, but it's because primarily they know what they're buying and they know what system they're buying them into, so they can use them to the best of their their ability. And there's no reason why we can't do any of that starting as of now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is the biggest mystery to me that. Um, oh, actually, I, I'm, I'm going to go back a little bit because, yes, it's a mystery as to why Mashuri would agree to the, to the situation that we're in. But I, I mean, I, I do know that 
there were other buyers of Everton Football Club when when, when Miss Sherry bought um, Everton or bought forty nine point nine percent, and 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 one of the key aspects of that, and I, I've said this consistently for many years. This is not a personal comment. Um, the differentiation between agreeing to one buyer and another buyer was the continuation of the role of Bill Kenwright as chairman. And I do think that, you know, Fahad Mishiri was sold something that um, he didn't quite understand what he was buying into. And uh, I know he did his due diligence and I know people who did um, due diligence for him. I mean, for example, people looked at Bramley Moore in the summer of 2015 on, on behalf of uh, Fahad Nashiri. So it was clear that he had a vision. He had a view as to what he wanted to do at the club. He wanted to move the club forward, provide capital, which was always thought as being the only element that was missing from Everton Football Club, the fact that we couldn't afford to do the things that other people did. Nobody ever really looked at how the club was run or what the governance structure was within the club. Um, the point, I, I guess the point being is that what Fahad Mishiri ultimately did, which other clubs didn't do, which and in particular, for example, Manchester City, is he didn't take a view as to what the man- management of the club was, both in terms of Bill Kenwright, who was previously uh, the, the major shareholder, but also the executive team that sat behind him. And t- to this day, I still don't understand why he was, why he bought the story, story that he was given in terms of the uh, management and the board of directors that, were were at Everton at the time, were the right people to take it forward. I, it, it, it's, I don't understand either because it strikes me that anyone who's run a business in the manner that Fahad Mashiri has run Everton Football Club wouldn't have the amount of money that Fahad Mashiri now, you know, now now has or or you know, frankly, well, unless have. they had a massive amount to begin with. Well, quite, 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 <laughs> yeah, sort of a few other things. Well, maybe. Yeah. But I think the, I, I think the, I, I think the challenge for me is then why you haven't learnt from it as well. I mean, you know, Bill Kenwright gets attacked a lot. And again, I don't doubt for a second, Bill Kenwright, deeply in his heart, wants the best for Everton Football Club. He'll be as feeling as wretched as we as we all are, as you know, fellow lifelong blues about the position we're in. Uh, but the question for me is, is Bill Kenwright the right person to lead a clear strategic review? Uh, is he the right person to take this club forward? And and yeah, and I say this genuinely respectfully to the enormous service he's provided and, and the enormous service he provided to this club in getting rid of uh, Peter Johnson in the in the 90s, which we, we shouldn't forget the last yeah. time we were in such a, such a mess. Uh, he's not the right person to do that. I think the... Uh, and again, I, I come back to Man City and it's not that I have any particular affiliation for that club at all. I just think they're a very well-run football club who use absolutely the best of the of the enormous kind of good fortune and, and good good that they had in getting that that money. There's a fascinating interview, which any, any Blue is worth the time of Blue's looking at with their chairman at the end of I think, the 2020-21 season, where he talked about 
the strategic vision for the club, where they wanted to go as a football group with some of the clubs that they own abroad, about the changes he wanted to make to the player stuff. And he gave this, I, I thought, very impressive, detailed description of what of what way thought the state the state of the club was now, where he wanted to go with the club in the future, the changes he wanted the changes he and the board wanted to make. And I thought, you know, this is a guy who's actually got the next 10 years really pretty well planned out. And things, you know, you can get good luck and bad luck in that period. Things may go to plan, things may not go to plan, but you've got a really clear view of what he wants to do with the, with the club as an organisation and a really clear view of how he's going to, of how he's going to get there. And uh, I don't see any of that around Everton Football Club. I hear, you know, warm words from people at the top. I hear, no doubt, genuine uh, desire for us to do better, for us to be competitive at the top. I've never heard anyone in the senior reach of Everton Football Club give a credible description of how we're going to do that, what the step, you know, we're not going to go from being a club who, if we're lucky, might, might escape the drop this season to being a Champions League challenging club in one season there's going to be steps on the way I've not heard those described I've not heard the, the decision making processes described that can get us there and, I've, and there's no there may be this kind of warm view around what we want what we all want Everton to be as one of the best clubs in the country nil satis nisse optimum but I've never heard at all a strategic take on how we get there other than well we're trying to appoint a world class manager which, which we might even have got for a short period in Ancelotti, and then we've tried to recruit other world class managers, and they've, you know, they've, they've all fallen flat. Yeah, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I know exactly the um, interview that you're talking about with in terms of um, Al Mubarak, and, it, and it, you know, it is from a corporate sense, it is like music to anybody's ears. I mean, it lays out exactly what their plan is and how, how, how they're going to achieve that, and clearly. We've never done that. Um, Mashiri has never done that as as a major shareholder. Uh, and in fact, he he talks about the fact that he is a you know an intensely um, private man. So he feels uncomfortable. Excuse me, uncomfortable doing those things. Um, and clearly, Bill Kenwright, for whatever uh, strengths that he has, he's not the right person to you know make that type of statement about this is what we're going to do in the future and this is how we're going to achieve it. Um, and that's really, I, th- I think that's the nub of the issue, isn't it? That uh, you can throw as much money as you want and you, and, and you can listen to Fahad Mishiri on the few occasions that he, he does speak and particularly when he spoke in 2016 and 2017 about a small window of opportunity about how he wanted us to be, well, actually, when 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 Ronald Koeman came to the club, he had a vision that a three-year project w- would end up with us being in, in the Champions League. Now, clearly, that never happened, and clearly, now we're even even further away from that. The real issue is why nobody puts their hands up and says, "If we continue doing what we're doing in the manner in which we're doing with the people that we're doing it with." Um, we're just going to continue the, the um, ultimately what can only be considered as um, the decline in the club. 
Yeah, I, I, I think I think that's absolutely right. And yeah, I, I think for what it's worth, that Farmer Shearer was right. There probably was a window around 2016. Yeah. This is this was pre Klopp Liverpool. It was pre pre Guardiola City. I think it was pre Guardiola City. They're, they're, you know, they, the Chelsea were clearly pretty dominant, but they were going through ups and downs as well. There was actually a window in that. You know, it's post Ferguson Man United. There was a window around then. And and we didn't take it again because we appointed the wrong director of football and we appointed the wrong manager, uh, and therefore we bought wrong players and the manager went and it was it, it was really a downhill from there. And in truth, we've never recovered financially from the financial fair play here of those years where you know the the, the summer we bought three number tens for enormous amounts of money, not 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 of him worked. You know, spending you know, lots of money on players, you know whose career never took off in the way he wanted or or were blighted by injury like Yannick Balassi. And yeah, it's it's yeah it's been a consistent uh, feature of life under you know, the, the last six years have basically all been the same. It's just the the team as a result has got worse and worse and worse to find ourselves in the predicament we've got now. There was a bit of a respite under Ancelotti. But even the signings that Ancelotti made were Good were short termist and were quite expensive. You know, I mean, mm. I think both Alan and Coria earn over a hundred thousand pounds a week. And I, I think Hammers was earning something like two hundred thousand pounds a week. Now these were better players than the ones they replaced, but at what cost? And players because of their age, next almost no resale resale value. And I think part of this is, from, and this is going to be a, a point that others may well not, not agree with, but I, I, I feel it quite strongly is in recognising where we are as a club and what we need to do to get to the next next stage is with some consistency and some competent management. This current squad we've got is, I don't know, the 10th or 11th best in the in the league. To get it to being the 6th or 7th best, which is the next stage in our development, we have to understand what the previous clubs who've gone on that journey have done, You know, the Leicesters of this world, potentially the Brightons as well. And all of that is based around... So West West Ham too is you know long term is competent managers, uh, but it's also based around an acceptance that you can you have to sell your best players now and again, get the money in, and use that to buy because you're confident your recruitment will be able to get ones who who deliver. You know Leicester can sell Harry Maguire for eighty million quid. By you, I think I think they bought Tielemans with the money. He's clearly an exceptional yeah. player, and then they bought Fafana. A couple of years after that, is probably a better centre back than Maguire is, and, and they still had twenty million quid in their pocket at the end of it. And you know, it's very difficult. You look at our crown jewels at the moment to think actually we've still got two players, even with Calvert Lewin's injury record this season, who are still worth quite a lot of money. Uh, but my my honest view is, how do we? No club has got from where we are now to being where we want to be next without recycling you know the cash that you know the kind of value that sat in those footballing assets back into the club to sign to sign more you know new players yeah <laughs> can't 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 disagree with that at all i think you know um if you, if you take a step back um strategically if you were sitting in on the board of everton you'd say look we have um two opportunities here to move forwards we either massively increase our commercial income or uh, match day income, some of which might, may occur when we go to Bramley Moor, um, or we, we have to trade our, our, our assets in, in order to generate the cash 
that we can then reinvest mm-hmm. in players that take us to the position that we're at. Yeah, and and, and, and that's right. And yeah, Frank Frank Bramley Mordock is has the potential to be a game you know a game changer. Uh, but it won't be if we're not in the Premier League and our assets will be... I mean, the catastrophe of relegation will be that we've got to sell those those assets, you know, to stay solvent, not because and not because we need to reinvest... because we can reinvest the money. And that, that opportunity of actually having two players who are properly worth some cash at the moment, and maybe a couple of others as well in people like Pickford, are... Yeah, you know, will be gone because they've got to go just to just to stay solvent, as opposed to actually being used then to smartly reinvest that money. Absolutely, and um, you know, there's academic research that shows that in in a situation where you're relegated and you're in a forced sale position, which we, we, obviously we would be, that you you know, there's no way you can extract the total value of those players. And in fact, I think um, Dan Plumley from Sheffield. Uh, University, he talks about the fact that, you know probably the value that you extract is only 50 percent of, of the true value, because obviously the buyers recognise that you are in a, dist- a distressed sale um, position. So, um, I mean, ultimately, a player is only worth what if you have to sell what someone else is willing to pay for them. And if there's not competition, then effectively, we you know we would need to sell, say, Alan, because there's no way we can sustain someone on his wages in the mm. in, in the championship. And if Lazio, so or you know, a club in Serie A or whoever it was, come back and said, you know, you can have two and a half million quid for him, but we'll take his wages, then we'd have to accept. Well, that is the other point that. Um, the transfer value of a player is direct, directly related to the relative value of, of their wages. So if they're moving to somewhere that to somebody that can pay the same wages that we've paid them, then there's a fair reflection in terms of transfer value, not, notwithstanding what I've just said about uh, relegation. But if you can't if if you can't move a player to a club um, that can afford to pay or is willing to pay the same amount that we've paid, then that uh, sort of exchange of value can only be reflected in a lower transfer value, which then you know puts us back into the position that uh, we, we have extreme difficulties moving move, moving forwards from a um, profitability and, and sustainability point of view. Um, I don't think I don't think I don't think there's any answers to this other than the fact that we recognise um, what the problems are. Richard, we've got probably about ten minutes. So, what's what's your view on uh, fan involvement at board level? I, I think it's I think it's really important because I think I, I wouldn't envy whoever ended up doing that job because yep. it's 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 hell of a job and i think you, you've talked in the past around the potential conflict of interest difficulties and if that person was actually a director of the company then that yeah then there's a lot of uh there's a, an awful lot of responsibility that that comes with that i i think having having the German model of fan ownership, whatever the kind of issues of the you know, the same club winning the Bundesliga ten years in a row, the German model of fan ownership is one I think would enormously improve football in the in this in this country. Uh, but we are still some way, you know. I mean, I mean that's not going to happen. 
the but i think having proper fun involvement on the board but as part of a proper professional board of directors that's got you know significant ex you know non-executive skills significant commercial uh you know outside skills or kind of significant sport you know knowledge of how you run of how you run football i mean is is important as well i mean it does feel to me like from what what we're hearing tim cahill is doing a quite useful job because he's got genuine football administrative experience as well as you know a fantastic track record at the at the club uh but you know he people like him should also then be on on the board as well as well as you know some people who've got proper experience running uh big commercial entities who can be really clear about how you how you do that yeah i mean i i am very much in favor of um fan represent representation on at board level I've been involved in the um, fan led review, and I, that is clearly one one of the major um, points that, that that they make in terms of um, better governance for football in future. But it, I, as far as, you know, if we look specifically at Everton, I think it is a very much currently a um, a poison um, chalice. Yeah, and I, I say that for one single reason. I think you can only be an effect. I think you should only be an effective, or you can only be an effective um, fan director of any football club if the governance structure of the club is correct in the first instance. Now, I don't think there's any any fan director that can change the governance structure, but I think any fan director that wants to go into that position has to look at the the governance structure of the club. And, and what do I mean by the governance structure? Well, I mean that the, the shareholder, whilst obviously they have influence over the board, um, and, and that's a given, there has to be an element of uh, the executive that sit on the board, and that's, and, and you know, in, in normal governance um, situations, that, that that's appropriate. There has to be people who have... Um, a non-executive role, and there have to be people who have a totally independent role um, in terms of they're not attached attached to the club because they become independent non-executive directors, but they don't have a financial interest or they don't have a professional interest in how the club is run. They're there just to provide um, their views, their experience, their uh, professional experience, um, to assist the people who are executives and the people who are um, non-independent, non-executives, they're there to help them perform the role that they have to perform. And I find I really struggle with the, with the idea that a fan director, without all of those safeguards around around him or her, can do any, anything that's effective. And secondly, can do anything that doesn't ultimately find um, the ire of the fan base. Because if you don't have all of those um, safeguards around the uh, the fan director, ultimately the the fans, which is you know ultimately what the, that person is supposed to represent, um, they're not going to be able to achieve what the fans want. 
No, I mean, which and the fans want a better football team, and <laughs> there's nothing a fan can director can do to 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 get that. And in truth, if they are you know, a member of, you know, as a kind of director of the company, they are quite rightly bound by confidentiality agreements and a whole range of other things that actually puts yeah. them in an utterly invidious position. So, I, I mean, the, the risk is that just having a fan director on its own becomes a bit of a, you know, you know the, the chairman, of the, the chairperson of the, the fans forum who, you know, gets invited to come to board meetings and and so on. Make a slightly no elevated difference. position, yeah. Yeah, and it makes mm. absolutely no it makes absolutely no difference because mm. actually, you know, take take the decision that fans have most disagreed with Farhad Mashiri over, and by the way, the ones with the fans were most right, which is the appointment of Rafa Benitez. Could a fan director stop that? I doubt it. I absolutely doubt it. And therefore, what you know, that's an impossible position for them because they then can't, because they're you know, they're bound by collective responsibility and a whole range of other things, speak out against it. It's not a position I'd want, I have to say. Um <laughs> yes, and, and and the people I speak to who perhaps might be most qualified um to take that position, and and I mean that with greatest the greatest of respect to um all, all Evertonians um, are totally of the same same view that you know in in, in the current guise in 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 the, in the current um, governance structure that exists within Everton, um, it's not a position they, they they would want to take. I think that because I'm not, I'm not clearly clear what the current governance structure at Everton is, and I think the fact that you know as, as people whose you know, many many of our waking hours are dominated by thinking about the club and the club plays quite a big part in our lives uh it you know the fact we don't know that and we follow these things quite carefully the fact we don't know that it, it speaks volumes yeah right is, is it possible for us to finish on a positive well, it doesn't I, matter if, if, if the answer is no. If the so, answer is no, that, that that's the answer. I mean, I, I actually think so much depends on what. I mean, the, the positive is we we aren't we are favourites to go down, but we're not done yet. There are three very winnable matches coming up this season: Wat, Watford, Palace, and Brentford, and then potentially some others as well. And and if we if we stay up, you know, if we you know we've got a talented young manager learning learning the job he's got a highly experienced uh set of coaching staff around him we've got some you know we do have some very good players at the club if we can keep them if we can keep them fit and in Kevin Thelwell we've got a director of football who's made I think an impressive start and in Tim Cahill we do seem to have someone advising the board he seems to have, have you know pretty good experience of administration and football and and a very good link to the fan base so all of that strikes me as a good base to build on. I mean, if you look at our five or six best players, there are very few clubs in the country who wouldn't want them. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we've got people like Michelenko, who we bought, who had a shaky first few games, but it's completely understandable given it's new to the league and what's what's going on in his home country. And he's starting to look good now. There are, you know, we've got, we have got some potentially good young players coming through. There are, and we've got ultimately we are we are Everton bloody football club. We are one of the biggest, most traditional clubs in the whole country. We've got a global. We do have a global reach, and 
there's an enormous amount for us to feel proud about and for us to uh, build on if we've got the right, if we can get ourselves in a position where we can recognise that there's stuff there to to build on. Uh, you know, and that means fundamentally shaping the squad in the way that Crystal Palace did with enormous success last season. If Palace did it, we can as well. But that requires total focus on what we're trying to do, a clear vision about how we're trying to improve and and really smart decision making. But you know, it's completely do it's completely doable. And but I I just at the moment have no confidence that the people above Lampard and Thelwell <laughs> can do it. Yeah, <laughs> I can't I, I can't disagree with a single word that you just said. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not sure how to end the podcast. <laughs> well, look, I mean, you know, we do, <laughs> let's just win at Chelsea. Let's just win against Chelsea, you know, and start start from there. That I suspect if we are to get anything from that Chelsea match, then I feel that just completely changes the mood around the club and, the, and I think we all might start to feel that actually then we've got something to fight for. Yeah. Actually, I think I think the way to finish the podcast and I, I really appreciate what you said. It's really interesting and I'm sure everybody that listens will, will find it really interesting is um, the role of the fans. And uh, actually, you and I both, well, we've spoken to each other for on a number of occasions previously, but actually, we we really started to engage when the um, twenty seven year campaign started. Uh, and you know, I, I don't mind putting my hand up and saying, you know, I'm a part of that, and I'm very happy to be a part of it. I'm very happy to uh, provide strategy and strategic advice in terms of how that campaign moves forward. I think the fans have a huge amount. Uh, to add to what the club can provide. I think in, in recent times, and I'd love to hear your view on this, I think in recent times the, the, the fan response has been magnificent. We started in, in December as a protest campaign and then we recognised that actually the pro- whilst the protest campaign uh, generated a response from the board and, and actually generated a response from Fard and Shiri. Um, actually, what was needed was providing much greater, greater support to the players themselves. And I think we've done that, not only us, not only the 27 campaign, but you know, um, lots and lots of other Evertonian groups. And actually, the Everton fan group is really interesting. This is a different discussion, but it, it is a very diverse group and it's a very sort of fractured group where um, different groups have very strong identities. But I think in recent weeks and in recent months, um, those identities have like, given way to a common purpose, which is just doing whatever we can do as fans to make sure that we do what we can do to keep the club in the Premier League. I think that's right. And, you know, the, people like County Row Bobblers and others have just done all, all the work yeah. on getting flags and building building an atmosphere. And it does make a massive difference. The players say it makes a massive difference. And you can tell, what, you know, when, when, the crowd got, when the crowd gets up, the players absolutely respond to that and it, it it will make a massive difference. And if we stay in the Premier League, it's because it's, it's because the crowd are dragging the players 
the players through it. And I think even Richarlison said something and saying that, that you know that they they need us now. And uh, after the Liverpool defeat, and and they do. And I, I take my hat off to everyone involved in that campaign. I also take my hat off to the people involved in the protest when it looked like Farhad Mashiri might appoint another one of his best mates, you know, clients to 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 run the club. Uh, to, to, to manage the club again, we, we get another kind of pretty pretty uh, crackers managerial appointment, and the and so I think the fans have got a massive role to play. But I think yeah, and we need to back the players to the hilt between now and the end of the season. But I think my my advice to the twenty seven years campaign and all the people who want change at Everton Football Club is we then need to find a way of as a fan base drawing a line and saying, you know we demand engagement we demand serious change we demand you know to answers about where the club is going what the plan is from now on and we demand a, a you know a, a say on the future of of our football club because ultimately all Everton football club is is the fans the players come and go owners come and go uh, managers come and go all Everton football club at heart is the main funders of the club the main reason the whole thing exists is the fans, and if we and we need as fans to kind of understand the power we've got, and to be able to exercise that from the final whistle at Arsenal on the last day of the season. So whether we're in the Premier League or the Championship next season, to say this, you know, we this has to be a yeah you know, a fork in the road, and we can never go. Yeah, we can never make the messes again we've made over the last six years that has landed us in this in this position of having spent best part of five or six hundred million pounds and finding ourselves as odds on favourites relegation with six matches to go. Yeah, totally get that. And I actually I think given given your experience in terms of like local um politics, in terms of you know being responsible for a relatively small area of London, which 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 you were, um or, or the orbit, a very important area. I think. I think what a lot a lot of people have forgotten, but is now, it's like everything in life. When when it comes to, like a really critical point, um, that becomes clarity. So up to the point where it becomes critical, there's like a, a lot of cloud and a lot of sort of you know, sort of um, not not very clear thinking. Everson Football Club is so valuable to the city of Liverpool. It is, I think it's culturally the most valuable cultural asset of the city, uh, both in terms of the city itself, but also in terms of the people uh, who support the club, but also the people who derive their, their livelihood from the club. And the idea that we just casually give up um, the importance of that uh, cultural asset it's just bonkers to me. And I yeah. think, you know, the people who run the club, Fahad Mishiri, Bill Kenwright, Denise Barrett-Baxendale and, and others, they have to recognise um, the responsibility that, that they have in the roles that they have within such an important cultural asset to the city and to the people of the city. And it is... I mean, this is going to be a different podcast, I know, because we're like running over time. How how do we end up with a situation whereby such an important cultural asset is in the position that it's in, given the resources that have been thrown at it? 
And we can't answer that tonight. I know, I, know, I know we can't. But what we can do is stress upon everybody who's involved in the football club, fans, the people who, involved, who run the football club, the players, everybody else, that the results of the next six games are not so much just um, a continuation of us staying in the Premier League. It's actually a continuation of what Everton Football Club is itself. Yeah, and there's very few of us who were around in 1951 who remember the last time we, you know, 1950, uh, the 51 to 54 period, remember the last time we weren't. weren't you you said us, us then, Richard. Were, yeah, you, were uh, you around I, in 51? I, I, I wasn't. No, there's this kind of good more than 20 years before I was born. And it's, uh, you know, and you get, and you get the point, no? Absolutely, Eddie. It's pretty, you know, the idea of Everton not being in the top division is pretty unthinkable. And, but what it means for the city, what it means, you know, we're all rightly proud of the community work the club does or the work of Everton in the community, which is, you know, admirable and, and speaks volumes about the values our club has and not being able to, you know, and I think it's critical that the people in charge of the club recognise that this isn't their property they are merely custodians on behalf of all of us and on behalf of the community and on behalf of the city and to a degree on behalf of the game of football, which you know, which in this country, Everton are a, a fundamental part of. And, you know, you cannot treat a institution of the importance of Everton Football Club in the way it has been treated. Um. I think that's a perfect point to end the uh, end the podcast. Um, Richard, thank you so much for your your views. I think your summary there at the end absolutely um, brings bring, brings to focus the position that we're in and the importance of you know getting through the difficult situation that we are. So thank you so much, and um, I'm sure we're probably going to speak again. Yeah, and up up, up the toffees. Indeed. Thank you, Bridget. Cheers, Paul.